Hey everyone, Brian Anderson here with the Sacramento Bee. Hope you're enjoying the holidays. Today on the pod, we start with a story from two of my colleagues about California Senator Kamala Harris. Here's the show. We are not going to have a circus here. I appreciate the president's tweet when he thanked me. Can you please hug me? (laughs) California's leaders are in open defiance of federal law. You know what, everybody? They never thought we could do it. both attended very prestigious law schools. You both clerked for Justice Kennedy. You were both circuit judges. You were both nominated to the Supreme Court. You were both questioned about your record. The only difference is that you have been accused of sexual assault. How do you reconcile your statement about a conspiracy against you with the treatment of someone who was before this body not very long ago? I explained that in my opening statement, Senator. Um, look at the, the evidence here, the, the calendars, look at the witness statements. Since taking office in 2017, California Senator Kamala Harris has been a leading voice on the issue of workplace harassment. She recently introduced a bill to ban forced non-disclosure agreements and harassment settlements. But questions are being raised about a key staff member she brought with her from the Attorney General's office. So let's bring in Alexi Kosif and Sophia Bolag, my colleagues at the Sacramento Bee, who have been reporting on this ongoing story. First, Alexi, tell our listeners what they need to know. So prior to being elected to the U.S. Senate in 2016, Kamala Harris spent six years as the Attorney General of California. And during that time, one of her top aides, Larry Wallace, was accused of harassment toward one of his assistants at the Department of Justice. This woman, Danielle Hartley, ultimately sued the Department of Justice, claiming that she brought forth complaints about Mr. Wallace, that he had in particular put his printer on the floor under his desk and asked her repeatedly to crawl under the desk to change the printer paper and ink every day. Um, and that when she brought forth these complaints to one of her supervisors that the Department of Justice did nothing and in fact retaliated against her. So over time this built up and when she sued she received quite quickly a $400,000 settlement from the Department of Justice. And we brought forth this settlement to Senator Harris Uh, in early December and asked whether she knew about it because the lawsuit was filed while the while the events happened during her tenure as attorney general the lawsuit was filed as she was leaving office and the settlement was reached when while she was already in the Senate she said that she had no knowledge of what had happened and that her as soon as we brought forward this settlement to her that she spoke with Larry Wallace, and he offered his resignation to her. So things elevated very quickly, and we've continued to look into the allegations since then. So, Sophia, what are still some of these unanswered questions that we're having right now? So we've asked the Department of Justice what their policies are for arriving at settlements like this and whether it's their policy to inform interested parties, uh, like in this case, 
uh, Harris and uh, her staff um, about them, about settlements when they reach them. Um, and so far, uh, we've gotten limited answers. The department has provided uh, their some some basic uh, sexual harassment policies that they have in place and their policies for uh, dealing with complaints. Uh, but we still don't have answers on uh, what exactly their process is for coming to a settlement agreement like this and uh, what exactly their process is for uh, informing uh, interested parties at, at different points in the complaint process and the settlement process. Another thing that's really important to note is that Larry Wallace has been one of Kamala Harris's closest personal, uh, professional confidants for more than a decade prior to this. He was with her when she was the district attorney of San Francisco as her personal driver. She brought him up with him to the Department of Justice to be the head of the law enforcement division there. And when she was elected to the Senate, she made him a senior advisor. So they've been very close and many people have raised questions about whether it's realistic and believable that neither she nor any of her close staff would have been informed about the complaints against him while he was one of her top staff members about the lawsuit against him uh, against the Department of Justice or about the settlement involving him. So we're also still trying to get answers about who was informed uh, at every step along the way and if, as Kamala Harris says, she was never informed about what happened, why is that? Was there some sort of breakdown in the system along the way? So we're now in a time where a lot of Me Too stories are starting to come out. Why is this topic particularly salient right now? So it's, it's well known that Harris is considering um, a presidential bid. Uh, she's considered to be uh, a potentially viable presidential candidate. And so uh, if she does indeed run, um, this is a significant issue that she's going to have to answer questions about. I appreciate you two coming in. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to California Nation. I'm your host, Brian Anderson. The midterms provided sweeping victories for Democrats across California, and anger over the Trump administration fueled a historic turnout of 64.5% among registered voters. It's the highest participation California has seen in a midterm general election since 1982. Now, the California versus Trump narrative is on full display at the Attorney General's office where the state has around 45 pending lawsuits against the Trump administration. Many of them relate to immigration and environmental policy. Earlier this month, I sat down with Attorney General Javier Becerra to get his thoughts on the state's ongoing clashes with the federal government and what it could mean for future elections. Mr. Becerra, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. Brian, thank you. So Trump in 2020, he's probably going to be using California to some extent as part of his messaging, how can California avoid playing into his hands? Uh, I, I don't think California is going to worry about it. At least I'm not. Uh, we're just going to do what we do. And we're going to try to do it as successfully as we have. Uh, and if we do that, we'll, we'll continue to prosper. And my job is to make sure I've got the back of all those Californians who've made us the economic engine for the country and given us a chance to be the uh, number one state when it comes to graduating young people from college, uh, from creating jobs in the 
uh, tech sector, to the ag sector, to uh, manufacturing, to uh, uh, you name it. You name it. But yeah. the, but for. The average onlooker, 44 lawsuits against the Trump administration, they'll step back and say, wow, really? Yeah. What's your response to that? That's what it takes to protect California's people, its values, and its resources so we can continue to be number one. Um, we don't sue uh, the Trump administration, uh, Donald Trump, to poke eyes. We sue to make sure they don't get in our way. Uh, if we're going to create the jobs that it takes, to make them available to next, uh, you know, graduating class from college, you got to keep creating, you know, good-paying jobs, and we can't afford to be backsliding to the 21st century kind of technologies, and we got to keep going forward. And so, you got to give people the sense that California is ahead of the game. And most of these are environmental issues. About half of the pending lawsuits are. Rest is mostly immigration comes up second. Why are these issues the most important ones for environmental and immigration? So environmental for sure. It's not so much that uh, we're suing on immigration so much. It's that the, the lawsuits that are characterized as immigration related are really public safety related. They are uh, states' rights related. California has a right under the U.S. Constitution to act as a sovereign in the areas that the U.S. Constitution doesn't reserve to the federal government. The Trump administration has decided it doesn't like that and it's overreached and said, no, we're going to tell you what you got to do in these areas that are typically left to the states to decide. And so, obviously, Donald Trump has decided to use immigrants as a, as a uh, way to bash people. And so it turns out that he he's done a number of things that for California don't square well. And so we've gone at it with the Trump administration because we're protecting our rights as a sovereign state, not because we're trying to invade immigration law, which is federal. And so I just, it's always important for to sort of make that distinction because it's not as if we're trying to muscle in on federal territory and decide how to do immigration. No, we're just trying to, to make sure the, uh, the Trump administration doesn't try to tell us how to run our state government. And with sanctuary cities and the Oakland mayor famously or infamously, depending on your point of view, sort of tipping off her community about agents coming in. That's an example that he's used to say, look at California trying to defy federal law. Does he not have some point that California is just out of touch with, with the federal government's regulations? So all of us who are in government in California who have taken on uh, the Trump overreach just got reelected. And so I think the message sent by the California voters is pretty clear. We want Donald Trump to keep his hands off of California when it comes to telling us how California should do California business. Is, is the sanctuary city policy overreach on the federal government from your perspective? So I defy anyone to define sanctuary jurisdiction. Valid. How do you define it? Walk me through it. I don't because okay. uh, there is no... There is no I, what it relies upon or what it, re, uh, what it refers to is a jurisdiction saying we're going to have principally our law enforcement engage in law enforcement public safety activities and not in federal activities, which include immigration uh, enforcement. Some people categorize, uh, categorize that as a sanctuary away uh, against immigration enforcement. We're doing immigration, 
We're doing enforcement work that pertains to immigration day in, day out. When we go out there to go after somebody who robbed a store, we don't care if that person is an immigrant or not. If you robbed a store under state laws, you violated the law, and we're going to go after you. Uh, we don't, though, target you at a grocery store while you're shopping for food to put on the table for dinner simply because you're an immigrant. The federal government wants to do that through its immigration uh, enforcement uh, agencies. That's up to them so long as they do it under the Constitution. We don't get in the way. And so that's the difference. We're, we're not trying to conflict with the federal government on anything, including so-called sanctuary jurisdiction laws. What we're simply saying is the Constitution, U.S. Constitution gave California right to decide how to provide for the general welfare and public safety of its citizenry. And that's what we're doing. And from your perspective, what is the role that California <clears throat> should assume in relation to the Trump administration? You see some people calling for a very progressive resistance movement. You see some calling for we got to work with them and be moderate. What, what do you see the role being? California's role is, again, it's not a, it's not, I don't, I don't char characterize California's role as having anything to do with Donald Trump. California's role is to continue to be the number one state in the nation when it comes to creating jobs, offering entrepreneurial opportunity, uh, graduating people from college, and getting ready for the 21st century. That's what we're about. But a bit, an, an increasing part of California's role has been resisting Trump's policies. And, and see, Brian, I wouldn't look at it as resisting. We're not trying to resist what Donald Trump wants to do. We're just saying what Donald Trump wants to do doesn't work in California. And so we're not going to do it uh, unless by law we would be required to. We're not going to do that because what we've done has made California number one in all those areas I've mentioned. When Donald Trump can come up with an idea that helps us create more jobs than we're make, doing right now, okay, maybe we'll listen. But if he wants to undermine our ability to create more jobs, we're not going to go there. It's not that we're resisting. It's just that we're going to do what California has done to be a forward-leaning state and the economic engine for the country. So you don't like this talk of the word resistance? I don't mind the word resistance. I, I, I appreciate all those folks who are saying they're going to stand up to Donald Trump's excesses and to the federal government's overreach. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm with people on that. But what I'm trying to explain is that when we file a lawsuit against Donald Trump or the Trump administration, it's not because we're trying to resist. It's because we're trying to protect, as I said, the people, the values and the resources of the state of California. With regard to the Trump administration, there's uh, millions of dollars Californian taxpayers have spent on some of these lawsuits around at least nine plus million dollars. What reassurance can you give to the taxpayers that the, this is all for, for, for you? How do you message that this, these fights that we're taking are for you? So, Brian, at this stage, I think we've got 44, 45, I think we're at 45 lawsuits now against the Trump administration. And folks will point out uh, that there have been a number of expenditures to make that happen. Uh, in one case, we got the courts to, to compel the federal government to return or to provide to our state more than $29 million that they were withholding from us. That pays for the 45 lawsuits and way more by a factor of about four or five. I don't file that lawsuit. We're out almost $30 million. That's more than the cost of those lawsuits. Uh, 
I stand behind each and every one of those lawsuits, especially since we've had almost nothing but victories in those lawsuits. Because, as I said before, California doesn't have time to waste spectating and watching others do things. And if someone wants to stop us from doing what's worked, we're going to stand up. And we're going to make sure they don't get in our way. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, It's time for our favorite part of the show, Buzz of the Week, where I give you my favorite headline from the world of California politics and invite listeners like you to share your top news items. If you have something you can't get off your mind, give us a call at 916-326-5538. Again, that's 916-326-5538. You can check our show notes for more information. Over the past few months, I've done a lot of reporting about the state's Department of Motor Vehicles. But the last week has been particularly busy, with headlines ranging from lowered wait times to registration errors to a director stepping down. Now, any one of these items would normally be a strong contender for Buzz of the Week. But what I can't get off my mind this week is Motor Voter. That's the program that launched earlier this year to automatically register people to vote when they visit the DMV. The program has come under fire lately for errors made by the DMV in transmitting voter information to the office of Secretary of State Alex Padilla. After a recent batch of mistakes, Padilla took aim at the DMV and its director, Gene Shiamoto. While there has been much reporting about Motor Voter, there's still a lot we don't know. The Sacramento Bee has filed a complaint urging Padilla to release records his office has been withholding from the public. And this brings me to my buzz of the week. I spoke with one senator about this very subject and he had much to say. He offered conspiracy theories about voter fraud and described a few bill ideas he had. That's where things took an interesting turn. But it is, it is one of the bills I want to work on. Now, if you want to give me some more provisions to put in that bill, I'm happy to do it. Now, this caught me off guard. A lawmaker asking a reporter to help draft language for a potential bill. I awkwardly laughed and gave this response. Well, it's not my job to... to to make law. I'm giving, <laughs> you, I'm giving you a chance, Brian. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy with my journalism salary here. Okay. <laughs> and with that, Senator John Morlock, you are my Buzz of the Week. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of California Nation. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. It boosts our ratings and helps people like you find our show. Word of mouth also helps. We'll be back in your feed with a new episode on January 10th. From all of us here at The Bee, enjoy the holidays and have a happy new year. Until next time, I'm Brian Anderson. This is California Nation. Hello, <laughs> Sophia Bolag. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. Bolag, Alexi. Okay. Alex, don't call me Alexi Bolag. No. <laughs>